Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Hey, you! Welcome to episode 17 of One Step Beyond, a show about positively engaging with the world outside our door. My name is Tony Fletcher. In the regular world, I primarily write mainly about music, which I also play to some extent and to which I teach to a degree. On this show, I indulge my love of the outdoors, of travel, and of the notion that if we kind of take the risk of shaking up our lives somewhat, it's very unlikely we're really going to live to regret it. After all, we only pass through once. And this episode is a perfect example of that uh, attitude I like to bring to the show. I've called it the It's a Wonderful Life on the Road edition. It's actually a reunion with a family that my family met while traveling in 2016, and I had not spoken to them in over four years. They had actually been spending years on the road as a four-person family, and I wanted to talk to them about those experiences. I hope it's going to end 2020 for this show on a really positive note. Not that any of the shows here are ever meant to be less than positive, but I think you know what I mean. It's been a tough year. In the words of uh, The Who, I have a feeling 21 is going to be a good year. We have to have faith, don't we? I've kept this show varied out of necessity, and that's my necessity. I don't really like the idea of being pigeonholed too much, put in a box. And so some of these stories have been about travel. A lot of them have touched on running. Many have been uh, recorded outdoors on hikes or runs. And I've just also talked with people who have done that, uh, you know, that thing of shaking up their lives and maybe moving country in the process or setting up a company in the process. But it's always on my mind, am I building something of a catalogue if people want to go through and listen more to it? And with regards to the travel, you know, I did a story a few episodes ago with Jess Gomkowski, the yogi triathlete, about her and her husband's decision to pack up from the East Coast, sell everything, including their house, all their possessions, give everything away that they couldn't sell, pack their lives into a car and move across the country and figure out where they were going to live um, at the end of it. On the last episode, I spoke with Trevor Warman, aka the Nomadic Packpacker, who has made a life out of traveling. That's just been his life. He says, hey, it's what I do. It's what I'm good at. It's been very, very, very tough for him in 2020, of course, which is why that last episode was called Travel in the Age of COVID. This episode is about a family, because on both those stories, I'm talking with adults who don't have children. And when it comes to travel, a lot of people are put off because they have children, because they don't think they can bring their children on the road. They're understandably really nervous about what it entails. They're worried about safety, about schooling, about the cost, about the sort of emotional damage they might do to their kids. They're worried about everything, as parents should be. But I'm here to tell you that it can work out. And so is the North family. They're also here to tell you it can work out. And I really thought it would be great not just to have parents talk about the experience of traveling as a family, but to have the kids 
talk about the experience of traveling as a family. And that's something you don't hear too often on podcasts. And I'm really hoping that between all of this, um, you can get some encouragement to maybe make your own decisions. When we went traveling in 2016, it was certainly not an impulse decision. It was something that had been talked about and planned for many, many years. So if you're listening to this as the show comes out, you know, at the end of 2020, early 2021, and you're like, well, no point in my making plans. We've got COVID. It is worth your making plans. You know, you can you can make plans to go next year, the year after. If you've got kids, think about the right age to travel with them. Listen to other shows like this. Talk to people. Make the decisions you need to make about how much stuff you have to sell, what you do about the, with the place that you live in whether you want to travel fast or slow, what you want to see and do, and the extent to which you're willing to just kind of go where the mood takes you. Unlike many other episodes I've done of this show, I'm not going to really interject much. Uh, Usually there's a lot of journalism in the show. It's what I was raised doing, so I have a habit of popping in to summarize maybe a long quote or maybe to offer some facts and figures to just uh, give you some reference points and sometimes to offer an opinion and occasionally to offer someone else's opinion too. In this episode, you're just going to hear an edited version of the chat from the North family's end. I think pretty much everything that I have time to discuss on a show like this is in there. Although one thing I should note for you now is the family originally came from Kenai in South Central Alaska. Look it up, K-E-N-I. And they're now to be found in Bellingham in Washington State. I'm then going to do what I did on the last episode and invite you to stick around afterwards where I'll talk a little bit about what I've been doing in my own life as it relates to the content of this show. And as there has been absolutely zero travel going on, it's all going to be about the outdoors. So if that twists your melon, man, happy Monday's reference for you there. Stick around. I'll see you on the other side. And with that, I invite you as always to step back or step out to dress up or dress down, I don't know, to do the boogaloo, do the fandango, do the monkey, do the twist, and join us as we prepare to go. One step beyond! So, from my left to my right, as you're spread out on the sofa there, can you introduce yourselves, please? Um, I'm Sophie. <laughs> Yes, you are. (laughs) Well, I'm Nate. And I'm Amanda. So we met in Chiang Mai in Thailand. We were both actually house-sitting, which is something we'll come to, in a weird kind of compound of very, very varied uh, buildings just out at the edge of the city. Anyway, when we were on our trip, people were giving us, uh, you know, obviously talking to us and saying, oh my gosh, you've gone away for like almost a year with your kid. That's incredible. And then, you know, we thought it was pretty good. And then we met you and you had the whole family, two adults and two kids. And when we met in what would have been somewhere in the middle of 2016, you had been on the road since when? Since October of 2013. So that was more than two and a half years by the time we met each other. When did you actually end up getting back to the States? We came back in the fall of 2016, but then we left again and went to Ecuador and spent the winter there and then came back in 
March of 2017. So then the grand total is more like four years. That's pretty incredible. Um, Sophie and Nate, I remember when we met, you'd already spent two birthdays yeah. on the road. And I remember that because I asked you about it. And obviously you spent more of birthdays on the road. So tell me what it's like as as kids to spend that much of your life on the move. It was something I, I think was really important. Um, to the kind of development of the person that I am. Um, I definitely didn't appreciate it at the time. I thought it was really cool, but I didn't appreciate the full scope of um, having that experience until we kind of got back. And then I realized that, oh, I actually missed doing that and traveling. And that was really cool. And I was really lucky that I got to do that. And what about you, Nate? I thought that it was really, really incredible. Like for a while, I wanted to go back home just like traveling traveling was fun but you know i missed home but then eventually it just kind of like set in kind of like it's it's kind of addicting kind of like just traveling going someplace new every time it's just i think it's definitely something that everyone should do and it's just yeah it's you start to miss the culture shock <laughs> how old are you both now sophie and nate uh i'm 17 and i'm 15 so you would have been on the road from the ages of about 10 and 8. Do I have that about right? Yeah. You sound very casual and indeed comfortable about it now. But in the planning stages, did you know how long you were going to be away as kids? No. No, we thought, I think as a family, we thought we were only going yeah. to, we were only internationally traveling initially for three months, mm -hmm. um, which turned into more like three years. and we def there was we definitely thought that like oh after this we're going to go back to alaska and resume small small town alaskan living um and i definitely missed that very strongly for a really long time but um i knowing how i felt then and how i feel now i still definitely would not trade the traveling experience so can somebody take me through the planning process, how you set out for three months and it turned into, I guess, the best part of four years? Um, we had a completely different plan as a family, which was to go sailing full time, cruising full time. And we bought a boat and planned very um, meticulously for this trip. And we emptied our house. We sold gave away um most every all of our possessions and then four days before we were going to drive out of alaska we got a call from the boatyard saying um there's a there's a problem with your boat and <clears throat> there was water damage in our boat and the key which was in south carolina the keel had delaminated from the hull and it was a huge problem <laughs> and we were kind of in shock and we repacked our minivan with camping gear instead of um, everything that we would need to <clears throat> take on the boat and we thought we have to drive out there and at least lay eyes on it ourselves. and we drove across the United States and visited family and stayed in national parks and saw places that we had never been <clears throat> and then we drove to the boat and it was going to cost such an enormous amount of money to, to fix 
the keel that um, that plan was not going to work. And we were really sad about that. <laughs> we drove back across the United States um, wondering what are we going to do? Well, we, we developed a plan that maybe we should go somewhere else. And we thought, let's either go to New Zealand or Spain. Mm -hmm. And because we all love the Lord of the Rings so much, <laughs> the kids knew that Hobbiton was in New Zealand, and um, we we chose New Zealand. And we got there, and it was so beautiful. We thought we we need to stay longer, and we applied. And I just want to add because you asked about planning. Yeah, is that we were on the west coast, and we kind of just said, "Well, what do we do now?" Yeah, and. <laughs> And we just said, let's go to New Zealand. And it, that was the decision. It was, it was that much planning. Had you done much by way of travel before? Had you done much sailing before? And I also want to ask, was this part of a retirement plan for you, Phil? This was based on that I was expecting. To re I had planned to retire in the spring of 2013 for a very long time. And we didn't sell the house, but we sold everything in it. And yes, I, but then I retired. And so, yes, and it was a lifelong plan of mine to go sailing, to go get a boat and go sailing at that time. So. Right. So the plan turned upside down. And I guess this is a classic case of you turned a crisis into an opportunity. I guess so. We, <laughs> we didn't plan it. We just did the next thing. We just kept doing the next thing. We didn't actually intend to go traveling for four years. We just it just ended up that way. <laughs> Right. So it's pretty fascinating about the New Zealand approach because we sort of ended up doing it the other way. Um, and you're completely right that Lord of the Rings was massive. And our young son, Noel, who was your age, Nate, was really into it. And when we figured out where we wanted to go, New Zealand was kind of top of everybody's list. It was also bottom of the world. So we kind of dangled that in front of Noel as a carrot. Like, if you'll come on this trip, at the end of it, we're going to go to New Zealand and it's going to be wonderful. And we did get to New Zealand. It was wonderful. It was utterly beautiful. And with your family starting there, I mean, it's kind of like downhill from New Zealand, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys think, was it? Uh, no, yeah. no. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was just like, it was a cool thing. And then there's like another cool thing that's close to it. So let's just go see that. And then, oh, there's another cool thing beyond that. So it's like kind of a trail of breadcrumbs. Yeah. Yeah. One of the truly great things about New Zealand, quite apart from its beauty and everything else it's got going for it, is they make it so easy for tourists. Um, we did the camper van thing, 40 days and nights in a beaten up old camper van. Did you do the same kind of thing? We had a camper van. We started out renting one. And then when we decided to stay longer, we bought one. And then, and then of course, sold it when we left. So how long were you in New Zealand for in all? 10 months. Wow. We discovered house sitting there. Yeah. And that's how part of how we made our travel affordable. Right. Was that so great? perfect moment. Can you elaborate on that, on the house sitting aspect? So we, we met, the way we learned about it was there was a French family in a campground at the very north end of the North Island in New Zealand who told us about it. And, um, and so we looked it up and, and we were a little skeptical, but somebody called us and said, hey, would you come and house it? We have a cat and we're gonna be gone back to the United States. Um, so 
we went and stayed in their house. And then before we left that one, somebody else called us. The, the reason that we were skeptical is because having young children, we didn't know if people right. would, would welcome a family. We, we yeah. had only heard about house sitting um, with a single person or a mature couple. Right. But it turned out people really were excited about the idea of a family coming to house it because it meant more um, love for their animals. Yeah. Yeah. More pets for the dog. And yeah. <laughs> more. But, but we yeah. had, we typically, I don't think we stayed any place less than two weeks was a short one. Mm -hmm. And two months was what we were usually looking for so that we could stay in a place for a while. And, um, so, but, and it was a mix of, of people calling us, seeing our, seeing us on the advertisements and calling us and saying, will you come and house it for us? And our seeing places and going ahead and, and applying for them. It was kind of a mix of those, but it really got us all around the world practically. All right. Which countries did you go to in all? You listed some of them earlier, but let's, let's have the full rundown. Um, Nate. I guess it was Canada, New Zealand, Australia, then Fiji, Bali, uh, what was next? Malaysia, Malaysia. Yeah, Malaysia. Malaysia yeah. Thailand, then Italy, Italy. Mm -hmm. uh, France. France, Croatia, Switzerland, Ecuador. And I think one of the themes of our travel was just travel slowly. And so when we took four years, we didn't actually have a plan to go for four years. We just took four years. But our intention was to go to places and stay there for a while so that rather than try to see everything, we saw a, just you know one or two places in those areas in great detail and got to know the neighbors and got to know the area, got to know the food, <laughs> so, which was a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Sophie and Nate, if another teenager came up to you now and said, why did you do this and what did you gain? What would your answer be? Um, well, why did I do it? Uh, because I was made to, <laughs> but why would I do it again? Um, it, it sort of has the same answer as what would I gain? Because I think I'm actually planning on doing it again and I would do it um, before I go to college. and. The reason is just because it's the the world is just massive and there's just i think i i don't even i i don't know if i can put a a label on specifically what it is that you gain from just like going around and seeing and sort of experiencing all these different and diverse experiences that are to be had by interacting with different cultures and learning new things, eating new and weird foods, um, just that sort of thing. So that's 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 both what you gain and that's why I would do it. It's just because there's a breadth of human experience and knowledge that is to be gained and enjoyed um, by going out and experiencing it firsthand. And then for you, Nate, you're younger than Sophie. She's almost at college age. I guess you're just around starting high school age. What do you say to somebody uh, you know, your age in Bellingham who maybe does not get to travel and is curious about why you did? How would you say this has helped set you up for life? I'd say that it just 
it gives you a better understanding of just like how to, I guess, interact with more people and just, you know, if you have a well-rounded world view, then you can just, you can do more things, I guess. You just like, you have, just have a better understanding of how it all works and just how different people's perspectives, how different people see the world. And then with that, you can actually kind of like try and understand their perspective, I guess. That our kids, you know, that we could stand on the side of, a, of the road at a bus stop and then pile into the back of a pickup where we're the only white-skinned people in the pickup. And these people are all going about their day. And it's very clear, you know, that they're just doing their thing. And there's, this is the world. That's, I just think that's such an invaluable can't be replaced as an experience. I agree, uh, especially as regards the kids. And that brings up another really common question, which is what do you do for education on the road? That's something that we got asked continually. And I have my answers. I'd love to ask them of you, whoever really wants to, to go first on that. I, I'd like to go first. Because <laughs> sure. I have very strong thoughts about that. Is that, as it turns out, while we did do homeschooling, while we were going and we had math books and they were keeping, the kids were keeping a journal. There were long periods, especially when we were moving where it really wasn't very practical to try to do the math or to try to do any organized education. But to sit on the side of a mountain in Ecuador and to look out across the valley and for me to be able to give a geology lesson right then and there, um, that happened in different circumstances, history lessons, geology lessons, civics lessons, all just as part of the travel, not as an intentional thing. It was just an opportunity based on where we were. And I think that the kids got more of an education doing that than they possibly could have in a classroom. And as an example, I mean, as proof of that, when we got back here and then they did go back to school, we were very, every, all of us, I think all four of us were concerned that maybe they were behind, especially on things like math and, you know, some of the top, you know, history or something like that. And, and yet we, they went into the school and they found that they were ahead and they were just instantly at the tops of their classes because they had this experience that nobody, very few, there were other kids in this particular school that had that experience, but it was, you know, they were not behind at all. They were actually ahead. And not, not because we really tried hard. It just worked out that way. <laughs> I, I would say that the, the, <clears throat> the doing math was consistent enough and, and that they did journal every day and they wrote massive amounts of postcards and letters. We focus on math because both me and Nate yeah. really don't like math. <laughs> so that was, the, that was the struggle. Um. I know that we filled out our, we, you know, we got permission from our school in New York and then we filled out our quarterly reports. And, you know, at the end of the year, we'd been to uh, 
the number of UNESCO World Heritage Sites we had visited was in the 20s. There is one in New York. It's in it's the Statue of Liberty. That's it. So we would fill out these reports and it was like, you know, we've been to these World Heritage Sites. We've been to these museums because museums was a big part. Education. We've been to galleries. Phys Ed. We've, uh, hey, we've you know, done all this hiking. Uh, you know, Home Ed. Well, we've taken cooking classes and we've, we've done this with a little bit of language in there. So we really felt we were ticking all the boxes and in terms of you know giving something I guess to our child I wouldn't question it for a moment but what I would say is that when he got back and he had a hard time not surprisingly maybe he had a hard time readjusting to public school here in the states regular state school um so what about you were you you, when you left to go traveling um Sophie and Nate were you coming out of a regular school classroom environment I think I was in a, when we left, I was in, I I just got done with fourth grade. And so I was uh, in a very much in a spot where I thought, because, you know, when you're in fourth grade, you think, wow, high school is going to be so cool. (laughs) So when we got back and started high school, I didn't have, still have that like, like 10 year olds, like, wow, that's going to be great. But it, it it wasn't super hard for me just because I had like talked to um my my friends. I I, I kind of steeled myself for the schedule, I guess. So it was all right for me. So just to be clear, did I pick that up correctly? It's some kind of alternative school that you're at now? Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, for Noel, you know, the feeling was when he got back from this uh from this incredible experience, there was no easy reference point at the school. I mean, I think the teachers would have loved him to talk about it, but he doesn't want to be that kid. And, you know, for for others in the, his age group, it's just, it's very hard for them to get their heads around it. So he ends up sort of, you know, going back to school and not talking about it. You know, in, in its own way, that's a shame. So I am curious whether you went through any similar kind of scenarios yourselves when you came back. If, 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 there's a curiosity to learn about it, at least for me, what it's, it's like, you, you can talk to about it with other people, but the main thing is to sort of just use what you have learned, um, and just kind of apply it to the situation that's around you. Um, but yeah, there's, I, I think there's kind of a weird culture around traveling because a lot of people think it's sort of an elite thing. Um, cause there's not a more of a realization that I think most, a lot of people are capable of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. When I, when I got back, like I wanted to tell people about it just cause I thought it was really cool. Like it was an incredible experience. I just want to tell people about it, but yeah, I eventually like soon realized that if people haven't shared your experience, you know, they can't relate. So it's hard to tell someone about something that they have no idea what you're talking about. In this school, um, the, the head of school, he actually uh, recruits families that have traveled. When he hears about families that have traveled, he actually goes and seeks them out and says, hey, we've got this great school and we travel. <laughs> so Sophie went to Peru last year and Nate went to Baja. And so they actually do travel as part of the school. So Sophie just hit on a really key aspect here. Uh, she mentions about people see travel as 
something elite. And I know it's not, and you know it's not. Um, but it's it's a valid point. And so I do want to ask you, you mentioned, you know, you, you went around the world for years. You mentioned about buying a boat. Um, so, you know, were you in the position of, was this a position where you had plenty of savings and you could just afford to do this easily? No, no, we're, we're no, <laughs> we're like, I would say in the middle of middle class. Not yeah. not upper middle class or just yeah. just in the. I was a federal employee in the middle, and we it was a savings. We that that boat was um, not new, and it was something that we had saved for for a long time. And it was it was like the plan was that we were going to sell everything and sell our house if we could. Um, we weren't able to sell our house, but we did rent it out and. We were going to live on the boat full time, very simply, mm-hmm. and so we um, used our savings. We did to and go ahead. And um, and then we discovered house sitting, which which took care of the cost of accommodation, which is huge when you travel. And then we would travel very slowly too, which also allowed us to save money. And we we did um, free camping. As much as possible. As much as possible. You know, we didn't we didn't go to resorts. Um, we did right. things cheap and cheerful, as they say. And but at the same time, yeah. we did not travel on a shoestring. We yeah. I mean, we were pretty comfortable, and we we our our budget was pretty close to what it was when we were before we started to travel. Or what it, if we're looking back, we we used our savings, but um, we pretty much spent as much as we did when we were each month as we did when I was working. And so we went through our savings. Um, but we did things like, you know, we bought a, we got to Australia and bought a, a, a four wheel drive SUV and a off-road trailer camping, you know, up top trailer so we could go into the outback and, and we bought a car in New Zealand, uh, you know, and they're all used of course. Um, but when we sell them, you know, we don't sell, we do improvements and we don't sell them as for as much as we got them. So they do end up costing a fair amount of money. And so, but we, you know, we did not, uh, we didn't, I would not say that we traveled on a shoestring. I'd say we traveled pretty comfortably finding those places to save money wherever we could. If, if I may, when we said we sent our, spent our savings, we didn't act- what we're talking about is um, 401k money. And I don't know that if that is entirely wise or not. <laughs> yeah. But this is what we did. And our fam- we had a health scare in our family. And I think that was a motivating factor in just saying, we're going to do this now. We're going to take this money and, yeah, and travel health. now. And so that, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about savings. If, it feels a little weird to talk about money because in our culture we don't. But I mean, if if we're going to tell you how where we got the funds to do that, that's what we're talking about. So it was a choice. It was a it choice. It was a choice to go ahead and do that then. And now, you know, I'm back at work. Amanda is um, being the stay-at-home mom, which is our choice. And I'm back <laughs> at work with no, you know, I'm in my early 60s and I have no intention or prospect of retiring anytime soon. The good thing for me is that 
I do the work that I would do if I was retired. So, you know, I get paid for it. <laughs> and so, you know, I do work that I really enjoy and that's so I can keep going. Great. And can I ask what that work is? Yeah, I work for a local tribe, the Tulalip tribes, <clears throat> and I'm the climate adaptation coordinator. So my work is to work on restoring treaty resources, the, the resources that they reserved in the treaty but have been so degraded over the last couple of centuries. We're working on restoring those. So that's my work. And I really do that work. So you essentially advocate for indigenous people in the United States getting to ensure that they keep the land that they've been promised? Yes, essentially, yes. Great. Okay, I've got a question for each of you. Uh, the catch is you've each got to give a different answer. Not the most fun place, not the most enjoyable. I want to know the most fascinating country you visited. And once one answer's been used up, uh, you've got to move on to another one. And I'm going to start with Amanda. Well, the most fascinating place, Australia, because you it goes from, I mean, trop the tropics to the to the temperate southerlies and and all of the beautiful exotic for us birds and those marsupials. <laughs> it was, it's like it's like um, seeing the animals are so different. It's like seeing unicorns or something. <laughs> Would you, you wouldn't call it a herd, a flock. I don't know what you would call it. A, kang, a, a mob, a mob of mob. kangaroos, yeah, like hopping yeah. across the, the, the grasslands. Grass grass uh, and and the the lovely people. Um. Wonderful. Okay, Nate, you're next. I'm going to say Ecuador. Mm. It had some really, really incredible history. And it was also just beautiful, you know, going from like the high Andes just down to the coasts. In the jungle. In the jungles, yeah. Yeah, just like incredible wildlife and like history, as I said, and the people are also very friendly, you know. It was just a really amazing place to go. Phil? All right, they took up the two things I was thinking <laughs> of in that order, so now I have to think of something else. Uh, boy, it's like all of them are just were so fantastic. So I think the most fascinating for me, to take that away, yeah, was maybe Malaysia. And I would really like to go back to Malaysia and spend a lot more time there. And uh, we went to, we went into Kuala Lumpur to start just to see, because we'd heard so much about that as a, that place as a city. So we went there and spent a few days and that was, it's a great city. I would love to go and spend some more time there. But then we also drove around. Um, the, net, the downside of Malaysia was the palm oil plantations everywhere, just destroying the, the forest. But uh, we went out to an island off the, off the east coast of Malaysia. Um, I uh, forget the name of the island. Tiaman Island. Tiaman, yeah, okay. and. Um, that was what I expect a tropical island to look like, just covered with forest and the coral was incredible. Um, the water was warm. You know, we just saw this, it rained really hard one day and then this amazing set of butterflies came out, just you know, thousands and thousands of butterflies flying all over the place of different kinds. And um, the food was really good. So I'd, I'd like to go back to Malaysia and explore a lot more. 
that means I get to keep my first choice, um, which was Indonesia. Uh, we, we, we were only on the island of Bali, um, but that was the first place where um, we experienced like a high amount of culture shock because I mean, Australia and New Zealand, it's, it's definitely different, but it's still part of the Commonwealth and you know, they speak English and stuff. Um, but in Bali, that was the first time where it was like, whoa, I have to get used to this. This is like different customs, different language, different religion, different everything. Um, so that, that, was, that was really, really cool. Um, yeah, and that's, that's one of the feelings I enjoy most from traveling is just the like disoriented um, first few days or weeks of just like having to get used to saying thank you in a different way. Fantastic. And actually, Sophie, I'm really glad you came up with Indonesia because the first three countries listed are going to make me sound way more traveled than I actually am because I've been to all of them. Uh, yeah. Ecuador, way back in 92, first time I ever really went anywhere different and unusual. It was on a group trip and been to Australia before our world trip because I had friends who moved down there. And uh, so I've actually been there there twice and then Malaysia on this trip. And I agree, Phil, Malaysia is fascinating. And the, the palm oil thing is is genuine and it's devastating. You you didn't mention Borneo, but uh, we went to uh, Malaysian Borneo for three and a half weeks. I think towards the end of our stay in Asia, um, and actually Indonesia owns most of that island, but we didn't go to the Indonesian part. And there was a point where we flew over um, these these this this forest sort of torn down for for palm trees. I mean, you could literally see the difference. It was like a satellite picture, but close up between like the forest and then suddenly the devastation of the forest. And among all the other tragedies of that is that the uh, replanting, the you know, the tearing down of the forest, the rainforests, replanting with palm trees uh, for lipstick, for things like lipstick, the kind of things people buy that they don't even realize the damage they're causing when they buy them in their local market. You know, in the Western world, you know, we're destroying the habitat of orangutans and, and they're our closest relative. I mean, they're our very, very closest relatives. So on top of all the other climate change damage, we're, we're like literally killing our closest relative in the, in the animal kingdom. It's so tragic. Anyway, um, well, I guess perhaps even saying on that, that kind of thread, were there any moments, um, you know, what were, the, what were the biggest challenges you faced? Was there any one moment in, in this three and a half, four years that felt positively scary? Hmm. I mean, how so in Australia, the first one, that was pretty bad. Yeah, <laughs> we had a bad house-sitting experience where we had a, and I won't go into all the details, we just had a house with four big dogs. We think that the woman was actually using the house as a dog house, and it was an absolute filthy mess when we arrived. We cleaned it while we were there, um, but it was just, ended up as a very unpleasant experience. That's highly unusual that to, to that would bad. not be the usual yeah. thing. And we cleaned it and made it spotless and looked after the dogs. And there were also ducks there. And, and the worst thing that happened was that the dogs from day one, which were trying to get to the ducks, finally did. And there was a ducky disaster <laughs> resulting yeah. in the death of all the ducks. Yeah. And it was horrible. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> that was the worst thing. That was by far the only bad thing. <laughs> yeah, we didn't really. Um, 
I, I think a lot of people in the U.S. are uh, unfortunately very suspicious of other people, and I think that would it would be great for people in the U.S. to get out and travel because yeah. over almost four, three, four years, there were, I can think of two incidents where I was like, like I was actually scared. Um, one of them was, and both of them like turned out to, to nothing. One of them was when we were in uh, Australia and we crashed our car on the sand island. And then I wasn't really scared, just sort of nervous because <laughs> oh. we, uh, we had, we'd left our trailer at a campground. And in order to go get it, we had to, um, my dad had to drive in a friend's car to go grab the trailer and bring it out kind of to the to the little town that was on the island. Um, which means that me, Nate, and my mom were left um, in the care of these random, like, fishermen who had just offered to feed us. And we had said, sure. And they were pretty drunk. They were very friendly, but that was sort of weird. Um, and then the other time was <laughs> in uh, on my school trip, actually, in Peru when um, – there was a, a guy, a, I think he was homeless, he was mentally ill, and um, he was he started throwing some bottles at us, but we, it, it was fairly easy to just walk away. So, yeah, it's it's really, I think if you are smart about it, it's, it's relatively easy to keep your risk low. And those fishermen, I have to add, were amazingly friendly. Oh, yeah, and they, they, they put us all up, fed us. They gave us muffins. Yeah, they, they <laughs> shared everything they had with us, uh -huh. and it was—they were the most friendly people. It was incredible. Mm -hmm. So, so I think what you're confirming there is this really important mantra that's worth repeating again and again: that most people around the world, the vast majority of people around the world, are inherently good people. Yes, so, like, yes, definitely yeah, good people. Right. And we experience that. Uh, I. Time after time after time. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I felt safer in everywhere that we went. Safe, safer than I feel in my own country. But but here too, we we met strangers who were so yeah. welcoming right. and friendly and mm -hmm. ready to help. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. So one of the biggest questions I can imagine anybody wanting to ask you guys in particular is how does a family of four, two parents, two young kids go on the road for the best part of four years and stay together and not just stay together, but you know, I'm looking at the four of you, you're huddled together on one couch. I mean, there's no shortage of family love here. How do you go through a trip like this? And uh, come out, you know, being being with each other twenty four seven for all this time, and come out the other side unscathed. I think, I think that if you're traveling together, you're you're kind of forced into a situation where you're in really close close quarters, like all day, twenty four hours. And so, if you don't dislike a member of your family, like it's not really going to work because like you can't dislike someone that you're around all day, every day. Well, yeah. I mean, if <laughs> so. I, I think it's a make or break. Like if you don't, if, yeah. if there's, if you absolutely hate each other, then it just, it's, it's going to explode. <laughs> but if you don't absolutely hate each other, then you're going to get really, really close. Mm -hmm. And it also helps that, uh, to have parents who are, uh, have mediation training. 
<laughs> That's also good. Especially with an eight and ten year old. <laughs> that is really interesting. I mean, is that true? Do you both have mediation training? Oh, I do. Well, was it called upon at any time, Phil? All the time. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't recall that it was. <laughs> it it was like I we we as going through COVID, it was kind of training for this moment where where I, I think it's been a bit easier for us um because we have been together twenty four seven before yeah. for for years. So I think um the 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 schooling from home which is what is happening now um i think it's this transition has been is a bit easier on us because we've done so. it before. yeah and we're not like extraordinarily extroverted people like i i think all of us would say that we're like self-labeled introverts we need time away from other people to just kind of recharge so it's it's not that we just like love being around other people all the time it's just and I think if the kids had, if they had been used to always going off to their friend's house, um, then, then, and then that suddenly stopped and they had to just hang out with their family, that, I could see that being a problem. But we were all together and they didn't, you know, so they didn't go off to friends' houses. They communicated with their friends more as the opportunity provided. And that, so that's how it is now. And so I think that did prepare us for this. And, you know, one key aspect, you didn't mention this, but I will. If your kids get on with each other, that's going to make it a lot easier, I take it. Yeah. And these guys have been there, each other's primary companions since they were born, at least since Nate was born. It, real life happened while we were traveling. Yeah. There were moments of, of meltdowns and needing to pull over and kind of walk around and cool off a little bit. And it... It all happened, but when we look back, the things that stand out are not those uh, things. Not, not those things. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, but we made home was became in our little camper van, or yeah. it was we're, we're here together. Um, the routines we were able to continue a routine. We we had meals at a regular time and we brush our teeth in the morning yeah <laughs> we would stop we would stop um when we were traveling by camper van we would stop at the same time mm -hmm. every day and set up our tent and so that's another thing that going slow helped us maintain um a kind of a schedule too for the kids mm -hmm. all right we're almost done um favorite country for food we'll go the other way this time sophie you start mm. That's a, it's really, really tight between um, probably Indonesia and Italy because, uh, I mean, I don't even know if you can compare them. They're just, they're, there's Asian food and then there's Italian food or Indonesian and Italian food are just, their they're, noodles are like my favorite thing. And those are the places that nail, absolutely nail noodles. <laughs> so, Yeah. <laughs> You know, I'm going to pick uh, bread in France. There was, I mean, we had a lot of good food and different countries have their best food, but I'm going to say bread in France. And there were times, it was a time when our, our we have a, a, another daughter and her, her husband 
they came to visit us in France and we were buying five baguettes a day and eating them all up <laughs> and, and not gaining weight for some reason. I don't know why. But, so that's what I'm going to say. Bread in France. Um, I'm going to say Indonesia. The, just, they had super, super simple, just like some noodles and some rice. But it was just like, it was so good. <laughs> I'm going to say Paula in New Zealand, which is abalone. Oh, yeah, that was so good. Yeah. Abalone is a fish, am I right? It's, it's, it's a, a snail. It, it's, a, it's a big flat sea snail. All right, so it lives in the water. That, that, I got that part right. It's what? Oh, it's, no, in, it's it in, in the water. It lives in the water, yeah. yeah. In, I just I have to add a little bit of a story to that. I'll be really quick. But I grew up eating abalone because I grew up in California, and we would go, dive and get abalone. And then, so then we went to New Zealand and uh, we were staying on a sheep farm. We were house sitting on a sheep farm and the son would come, uh, the sheep farmer, he would come and visit us periodically and he took us out to get abalone. And, and so he wanted to see how we prepared it. And, and it's not the same at all because it's in New Zealand, abalone is very tender. In California, it's very tough. And so you have to prepare it differently. Um, but he made, these abalone fritters that were, I think, great as the best food I have ever had in the world anytime. <laughs> they were so good. They were incredible. We had had abalone fritters in a different part of New Zealand, and we actually threw them away because they were horrible. But he made some, and they were, uh, they were ecstasy. So <laughs> anyway, I had, to, I had to add that story. <laughs> When you look back on this incredible journey of multiple years traveling, living elsewhere, on the road, what are you most thankful for? I would say that the people that we met, the people that we met on our, in our travels and, and those friendships that we still have. I think I would mm -hmm. say just the perspective that I gained and just a new way of seeing the world. I think I have to go with Nate on that too, because it's hard to sum it into one statement of what I'm thankful for, because there was just so much, so much experience. So I'm just thankful for that entire experience. I would say the opportunities I've gained through having that kind of like worldview and scope, scope of experience, it's definitely life-changing. Well, I've got to say, this has been such a blast. It's been so lovely to catch up with you. Uh, you know, it's, it's like four years since we got back from our trip and less than that for you. And seeing the kids sort of somewhat grown up, you know, it's amazing. You form, It's true. You form some friendships on the road and they, they stick with you. I, I would say we met kind of three families that we spent some time with and I've stayed in touch with two of them. Um, or I have done now that I've reunited with you. Yeah, well... When COVID's over, this is a comfortable couch. <laughs> I really, really hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. But unlike most of the other conversations I've featured on this show, I don't have a wealth of social media or blogs or websites for you to go follow the North family. 
They have nothing to promote, nothing to sell. The Norths are just happily living their lives. Phil is clearly doing great work out there in Bellingham. And I was particularly knocked out by how mature Sophie and Nate have become. I have every confidence that they will make this planet just that little bit brighter as they grow into adulthood. However, if you didn't love this episode, but you'd like the concept, and you would much prefer to hear some other family talk about life on the road and some other podcast host interviewing said family, well, by perfect serendipity, one of the shows I've been listening to a lot this year, it's called All the S-H-I-T I've Learned Abroad, has just dropped an episode called World Towning, described as the act of taking up temporary residence in foreign places to experience day-to-day life as a local, which does sound very, very close to the way the Norths uh, experience their world journey. So the founders of this concept, World Towning, are Will and Jessica, and on this particular episode of all the SHIT I've Learned Abroad, episode 76, they talk about their six years on the road and counting with their own kids. Though the kids aren't featured on this uh, particular show, and again, I think that's something that's really neat about the interview you just heard, those kids do seem to be part of what is, in this case, a very, very active social media presence. Search for World Towning and you'll see what I mean. They have a YouTube channel under that name and it is professional. I do believe they own a drone or two. My thanks to a local running friend, a new friend, Jeff Corin, who I uh, just get to see on Mondays occasionally, but who listens to this show regularly. And he recommended to me the Runners World UK podcast, specifically its episode 87, London Calling, when Joe Strummer ran the London Marathon, on which photographer Steve Rappor details the time that the Clash frontman ran the 1983 London Marathon, which was especially surprising at the time, partly because Strummer was not exactly considered a a paragon of athleticism, but probably more importantly, because he was actually officially missing at the time. And for those of you who enjoyed my Thanksgiving half episode, a short story I wrote um, about uh, a a particular part of our own travels in Morocco, just one of many short stories I've written, but the first one I've read as an episode here. Well, you might like the brand new show called Baggage Claim. Travel stories no one tells. Well, the tagline's not completely true because uh, the author, Will Conway, tells them. And he got in touch with me to say how much he had enjoyed that, uh, that one-off episode of One Step Beyond and that he was doing something similar. His first three episodes have dropped. He may be up to four now. The ones I heard are all set in Colombia, which is kind of coincidental because it was two years ago right now that I went down to Colombia for the first time the only time I saw in the new year of 2019 down there with my friend Rick Dragon, who was featured on episode seven here. He's the one who moved from Kingston and the Catskills all the way down to Bogota, Colombia, where he started an art colony, Arta Sumapaz, which appears to be thriving despite opening in a pandemic year. Following on from episode 15, Who Was Diogenes and Why Should We Care?, I went back out on the mountains with the uh, minimalist supreme, Ken Posner, who kindly offered to get me up two more of the Catskill 3500 peaks, North Dome and Cheryl, which we did, again, without maps or other navigational tools, 
And we did this on a brisk Sunday right after Thanksgiving with four to five inches of fresh snow on the ground, fortunately no ice, making for the most beautiful day out. Ken kept his shirt on this time, though he did go the whole seven hours without food or water. Ken is a great believer in going barefoot where possible, and although he was shod, as we call it, on both our recent climbs, i.e. the one that was featured on this show and the one he took me on subsequently, I look forward to going barefoot more frequently myself when the weather warms up. I'm really, really happy to endorse them, and I'm very excited to know that Ender is planning to release uh, some trail shoes, hopefully, in the spring. And so, as we end this incredibly difficult year, I do look back on One Step Beyond, all these interviews that I've done, these stories that I've run, as one of the better things about it at my end. You know, it's kept me busy, it's kept me creative, and in the absence of travel and socialising, it got me into these conversations, many of which are with people I really probably wouldn't have met even if I had been out there on a true adventure or two. I'm really grateful for these conversations and all the connections, and I hope you have had fun listening along. With that, I wish you a merry 2021. And if you're listening to this in the future as a back episode, can you pop back into the past and just assure us that everything works out? Cheers. This episode of One Step Beyond was written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher. Incidental music in this episode is by Noel Fletcher. The theme song is by Madness, used with permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. To subscribe to a newsletter or just reach out via email, contact One Step Beyond at ijamming.net, ijamming.net. And of course, you can find us on social media. Just search One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher and we should come up on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And you can find all of these links in the show notes. One Step Beyond is available on just about every podcast platform known to man and most likely a few that have yet to be discovered. And it's hosted by Acast. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button and or leave a positive rating and or review. Special thanks to Radio Kingston for airing these episodes and for supplying studio space when not under lockdown. Until next time, stay safe and stay active.